I am Margaret Smith, and we are doing expectations regarding scripture and prayer. And we are talking about Lisa Hughes. She wrote this book on unmet expectations, and her subtitle was How to Deal with Our Hearts When Disappointments Come and Often Linger. Okay, and last at the last meeting, Yvonne discussed our expectations in regards to God. And today I'm going to discuss the expectations we have regarding both God's word and prayer. And really, my goal is to discuss the surpassing greatness of God's word and the privilege of prayer. And you will see that I very lightly touch on expectations. I more just show you, my intent is to show you the beauty of both of those. Before I get started, I would like to share my background because we are learning that backgrounds certainly color our expectations. You know, I think of all the people here, I probably know 50% of you well, and the other 50% have no clue who I am. So this is a good introduction. I grew up on a dairy farm in upstate New York in a small town in the Catskill Mountains very similar to here. So we had the Catskills in the background, um, but we had nice fertile ground right up close. As farmers, we grew up working hard and we went to church most Sundays, but we were attending a church that was more like a social club. We were raised with biblical morals, but not because we loved God and wanted to please him, because that's what you did. You were farmers who worked hard and did the right thing. Um, so the underlying lesson that was mostly caught rather than taught was that if you did what was right, worked hard, and were kind to others, you would do well in life. When I was 16, the Lord started working in our family. And we started attending a church that preached the gospel. Long story short, the Lord saved me. And I was encouraged at that church to have regular times studying God's word and praying. And so I did. Then when I went to college, the church there, the pastor encouraged us. Ladies, I would recommend this highly. He encouraged us to read through the scripture rapidly, 30 minutes every day. I did that for years. You get through the Bible about three times a year when you're doing that because you're just reading it consistently and you get the big picture. And that was his intent. He had all these college students. He's like, get to know God by reading his word. And so I did that for years. Um, and I think I definitely expected that if I read God's word and prayed, every day, and my life would go smoothly. After all, I had memorized Proverbs 3.23, trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will direct your path. With God directing my path, everything would go smoothly, right? Well, fast forward to the part of my life where I now had seven children, and we we're homeschooling, they were between the ages of 5 and 16. We're involved in homeschool, speech and debate, soccer for all, 
We were on five different teams. It was a little crazy. I still cringe when I look back at those days and go, oh, that was too busy. Um, there was ample opportunity for sin. And I didn't understand why things were no longer going smoothly. Anger, gluttony, impatience were just a few of the sins that I had to deal with often, if not daily. I had to repent. Truly made me question God, and it led to disappointment and discouragement. After all, 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I was confessing my sins, and I believed he would forgive me, but I was still experiencing that unrighteousness. Around that time, Don Whitney, a professor at Southern Seminary and author of numerous books, including Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life, came and spoke at a conference here at Grace. He was the first one to help me see my wrong expectations. So this is important. Because by that time, I was 40-something. When I became a Christian, I was 16. So I had been living for quite a long time with this wrong understanding that if I did this and this, and I checked it off each day, and I'm really good at checking off things, that my life would go smoothly. It just, that's what I expected. And I point that out because I think God does work with us slowly. And there, you don't grow in sanctification like this. You grow like this. And so there are things that you learn slowly. And so this was one that I learned all of a sudden. I was like, okay, so I'm getting ahead of myself. He explained that even though he recommended these spiritual disciplines, including Bible reading and prayer, that they weren't a magic formula, that your day didn't necessarily go the way you anticipated just because you had done what you were supposed to do. I literally had to sit and think that one through. I remember sitting right back there and thinking, wait, what? Wait, isn't it? I mean, I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. Isn't that the way it works? I really thought it did. So this was very eye-opening. In just that example, I had two very profound unmet expectations that caused a discouragement in my life. First, that my life would go smoothly if I just read God's word often. And two, that I would stop sinning because God would cleanse me from all unrighteousness. Well, if you look back at Proverbs 3.23, it says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. But does God directing my path mean that my life will go smoothly? What even does smoothly mean? I know what I intended it to mean, that I would be happily married, that my children would be obedient, kind children, and that I would continue to grow in the Lord, having victory over sin. Hmm. A free piece of advice. This is a good example of why it's so important 
to use biblical words because going smoothly is not biblical. God directing my path certainly is. And he was doing that. Okay, it says he will direct my path. He was directing my path. In addition, 1 John 1, 9 doesn't say if you confess your sins, you are going to be sinless. It says he is faithful and righteous to forgive your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And that is positionally. His death on the cross paid the penalty for my sin and cleansed me from unrighteousness. And it's very obvious if you read a lot of scripture that you're not going to be sinless. And I don't think I even expected to be sinless, but I think I expected to be more holy than I was. Because, yeah, I, I, I could get angry and that and frustrated, well frustrated, and yes, sinfully angry, <laughs> angry. Okay, I will make a little diversion here. John 20, 31, if you want to turn there, it says, but these things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So that was the reason that the book of John was written, so that we could believe and have life in the name of Jesus. So ponder this. In Greek mythology, Homer wrote how one of the Greek generals, long story short, sacrificed his child to gain favor with a god so he could have safe passage on his ship. We cringe at that, right? We go... Who would sacrifice their child just to appease a God? But when we see that God sacrificed Jesus on the cross, that is so very different. And it's different because of the Trinity, because in reality, God was paying the penalty for our sin himself. It was Jesus the Son, who is fully God, was paying for our sin. So on the cross, it was Jesus Christ and demanding not our blood and not our child's blood, but shedding his own blood. He was the propitiation for our sins, and as a result, we are redeemed. This incredible atonement on the cross is what cleanses us from all unrighteousness before God. It is how God can be both just and the justifier of those who believe. And I would just like to say, if there's anyone here today who is not certain that Jesus is your Redeemer, to please discuss that with someone, with your small group leader, with Yvonne, with myself, with Chris, one of your elders. That's hugely important. And so if you're not certain on that, do remember it. Okay, so moving on to what scripture says about itself. So that when disappointments come, we will know how to deal with our hearts. Jeremiah 9, 22, 23 through 24 says, Thus says the Lord, not a wise man boasts of his wisdom, and let, 
Let not a wise man boast of his wisdom, and let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For I delight in these things, declares the Lord. Consider the greatness and the mercy of God, that he in his kindness has allowed us to know him, and he has given us his word as a very specific way to know him. Second Timothy 3, 14 through 16, just gives us, this is one of my favorite verses for what the scripture is for us. It says, you, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from where, from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped, for every good work. I don't feel like I need to fully explain that one. That is pretty self-explanatory. But when you think of scripture, when you picture yourself having a problem, maybe your child is just giving you a hard time, not being obedient, Maybe you're having a conflict with someone at work. Who do you go to for advice? Do you go to God's word? And I I love this because it says, I mean, this is all encompassing. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for salvation. Yes, that's true. But it it gives more, so much more, for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God, the women too, can be equipped for every good work. And I would encourage you, when you have problems, when you have things that need to be addressed, to look for the answers in God's word. Okay, if you would turn to Psalm 119, and I promise we will not read the entirety of that, Um, If you are familiar with Psalm 119, it's the longest chapter in the Bible, and almost every verse talks about God's word using a variety of different words, such as law, testimonies, precepts, and verses 1 through 7, I'm going to read, how blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord, how blessed are those who observe his testimonies who seek him with all their heart. They also do no unrighteousness. They walk in his ways. You have ordained your precepts that we should keep them diligently. Oh, that my ways may be established to keep your statutes. Then I will not be ashamed when I look upon all your commandments. I shall give thanks to you with uprightness of heart when I learn your righteous judgments. 
Remember how I said it's important to use biblical words? Well, here is such an example. The verses start by saying, how blessed are those who walk in the Lord, law of the Lord. Does blessed mean go smoothly? I, I use that word all the time. I just am a little convicted about that because I, okay, I like to say, oh, did you have fun? Go have fun. We, that's one thing I always remember you commenting on that years ago when our kids were little. It's just a mindless word that comes out and things going smoothly. We pray for that, don't we? We pray that the operation would go well, that it would go smoothly. But I, I like to use more exact words. Well, I try to. Um, but here it says, it would be easy to think so, but from a biblical perspective, according to the MacArthur Study Bible, the definition of blessed is a deep-seated joy and contentment in God. So the person who walks in the law of the Lord, who observes, observes his testimonies, who seeks him with all their heart and walks in his ways is blessed. They have a deep-seated joy and contentment in God. Being blessed doesn't mean you won't have troubles, but because of the foundation you will have in God's word, you will know God's character and be able to trust him when things don't go the way that you want them to go. And I know I've used this example before, but seven years ago, they found a tumor in my spinal column and it had to be surgically removed. It was quite large. Um, and I just remember having a very strange piece. I mean, you're going, wait, they're doing what? Because <laughs> if they messed up, I would have been paralyzed from the neck down because the surgery was right up here. It seemed like I should have been much more anxious, but I feel like those years of reading God's word and understanding who God was I didn't need things to go smoothly. I needed God to be in control. And I knew that he was, and I had that peace. I think it might have been even harder for my family um, because I figured if I, well, being paralyzed would not have been fun, but going to heaven would have been. Um, but here I am. It actually went smoothly. <laughs> um, but yeah, so Psalm 119 continues on. In verse 9, it says, how can a young man keep his way pure? I was listening to a sermon on this, and the guy said, yes, and an old man too. And so I will say, and a young woman and an old woman. How can we keep our way pure? By keeping it according to your word. With all my heart, I have sought you. Do not let me wander from your commandments. Your word I have treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. So notice some of the aspects of this. So Psalmist emphasizes that with all my heart, I have sought you and your word I have treasured in my heart. When I will say, especially when the kids were little, having my quiet time, again, I am a person that likes to check off boxes, so I would do it but I wouldn't say I was treasuring it. I was trying to get it done because I had so many things to do. Um, 
So I had a good friend, Karen Heisig, who was a, a bit of a mentor to me. She's like 10 years older than myself. And I remember her making the point, when you don't have enough time to be in the Word, your babies are waking up, whatever. You're going to work, overslept. We can all come up with excuses for why we don't have enough time to meditate on God's Word. That's one of the blessings of memorizing, because if you've memorized God's Word, it'll be in there for times when you're running out of the house, when you're brushing your hair, you say, Lord, please clothe me today in your Word. You can pray, you can meditate, and to treasure God's Word. Because there are so many times that you, you just get going. But it's, I, I love that idea that we really need to treasure God's word. And it's so that we will not sin against God. Okay, moving on, verse 14. I have rejoiced in the way of your testimonies as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and regard your ways. I shall delight in your statutes. I shall not forget your word. Open my eyes, oh, verse 18, I make another little jump. Open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from your law. It's a wonderful prayer. Before you go to the Lord, when you have time in the word, ask him to help you with this. Help, say, Lord, help me open my eyes that I may see wonderful things from your law. I could continue through Psalm 119. We're going to move on. But that's why we gave you this for your homework assignment because there's so much in here and verse after verse after verse. So please remember to do that homework because I do think it will be very influential. And I think that you will be blessed with a deep-seated joy and with contentment in God. Okay, we're going to now look at Psalm 19. And we're looking at verses 7 through 14. It says, The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. Not just making us obey, they're rejoicing our heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean. Enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold. Yes, than much fine gold. Think about that. For those who are on a very limited budget. For years we're on a very limited budget. And yet God's word. I mean, we, we can buck at not having the things that we see others have. But God's word is more desirable than fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. So it helps you to see what God wants of you and warn to stay away from things that will harm you. And then it says, In keeping them there is great reward, who can discern his errors? Acquit me. So he's praying, Lord, acquit me of hidden faults. Also, keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. I think that's a prayer. Okay, I'm just delving into prayer a little bit, but we'll get there. 
but it's a prayer that you can pray. Let them not rule over me. Then I will be blameless and I shall be acquitted of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Do you see the richness in there? God's word is perfect. It restores the soul. It makes the simple wise. It rejoices the heart. It enlightens our eyes. It's righteous. It's more desirable than gold and sweeter than honey. And then it turns and explains that by God's word, we are warned and there is great reward in keeping it. So I have a quote from Charles Spurgeon, which is excellent on Psalm 19, it says, the law of the Lord is perfect, by which he means not merely the law of Moses, but the, doc the doctrine of God, the whole run and rule of sacred writ. The doctrine revealed by God, he declares to be perfect. And yet David had but a very small part of the scriptures, and if a fragment, and that the darkest and most historical portion, be perfect, what must the entire volume be? How much more perfect is the book which contains the clearest possible display of divine love and gives us an open vision of redeeming grace? The gospel is a complete scheme or law of gracious salvation, presenting to the needy sinner everything that his terrible necessities can possibly demand. There is no redundancies and no omissions in the word of God and in the plan of grace. I found that to be an encouraging quote. God's word is perfect. The gospel, the law of gracious salvation, presents to the needy sinner, to us, everything that our terrible necessities can demand. Our sins are forgiven by Jesus. Okay, so the doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture is a fundamental tenet of the Christian faith. To say that the Scriptures are sufficient means that the Bible is all we need to equip us for a life of faith and service. It provides a clear demonstration of God's intention to restore the broken relationship between himself and humanity through his Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior, through the gift of faith. No other writings are necessary for this good news to be understood, nor are any other writings required to equip us for a life of faith. We look now at Philippians 3, 7 through 11. And I love this because it says, whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. Listen to how Paul puts that. And he may be found and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings 
being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Do you see the emphasis that Paul puts on knowing Christ? And we can know Christ through his word. It is his all-surpassing desire to know Christ, and we can also know Christ and the power of his resurrection, and yikes, the fellowship of his sufferings, that's in there, that's probably not going smoothly, and being conformed to his death. Those are all things that when you know Christ, you have. And there are things that, that go on, and we live in the United States with very little persecution, at least at this point. But there are people that live in China, that live in Colombia, that live all over the place. I'm sorry, this thing, I keep fiddling with it. It's not staying behind my ear. Um, but I think of John 10.10. 10. It says, I have come that they may have life and that they have, may have it more abundantly. And I think as Christians, we truly have more abundant life. When you're serving and loving and knowing the Almighty God, that's what really matters. So, what false expectations do you have, do we have? I gave you two of mine. One, that we will never suffer. I know that there are groups within Christianity who kind of put that out there and say, come to Christ, everything will be smooth and wonderful. That's a false expectation. Um, Trials definitely come upon us for our growth. God can use them for our good. Truly, if you're familiar with Romans 8.28, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. That's one of those verses we all know. We've heard many times it's also one that you want to use very gently when somebody's going through a trial. But at the same time, it can give such hope. If you trust God, if you know God's character, when things are tough, to go, Lord, I trust that you're using this for my good. So couple other verses. I just quickly wanted to go over James 1, 22, because this is so important. Andy and I had the privilege of visiting the birthplace of John Muir. And if anybody's familiar with him, he is a guy that was born in Scotland and ended up in California and is responsible for most of the national parks being started. He's got that quote, the mountains are calling and I must come, or something like that. Very, very sad story. This guy was raised in at least a Christian home of sorts. I didn't know his parents. But he was forced to memorize the entirety of Scripture. And he apparently did pretty well at it. He had a lot of Scripture memorized, but he did not treasure it in his Heart. It was done out of obedience to his parents. 
didn't sound like he loved them. And once he got out from under them, he just rebelled. And I struggled with that when I first heard it because I thought, well, hold on. I thought God's word would not return void. Here they've taught him. He knew God's word. He knew all of God's word, it sounded like, from what this article said. So that was my expectation. Here's a guy who's memorized God's word, but he was not treasuring it in his heart. And he was bitter that he had to do this. And he rejected it in full. And that just is a sad, sad story to me. And it's also a lesson that we want we want to use, we want to draw our kids with the honey of God's word and not beat them over the head with it. Because it's, I think what I try to do with my kids is to teach them in advance so that I didn't have to hit them over the head with it afterwards. And I'm not coming up with a good example of that, but it's just better that they know what's expected of them and that it's to love and please God, not just to obey mom and dad. Um, but yes, so James 1, prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. That's not the good one. You're supposed to remember. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. There's that word blessed again. Have a deep-seated joy. Okay. So here I have 12 pages, and I just got through the sixth page. This is a trial because I'm like, or a test, right? I was like, okay, I really don't have a good feel. I read one page and it took me three minutes, so I thought I had plenty of time. <laughs> so I will just skip some of this. But I do think it is important for us to evaluate our lives. What do we spend our time on? Um, how central is God's word to your life? Again, for the purpose of knowing and loving God, not just for the purpose of checking it off. Now, I will say, if you are checking it off, because it's a good thing to do, go ahead and check it off. I mean, it definitely benefited my life to be in God's word all the time. Um, but treasure it while you do it. And remember to worship God while you're reading his word and have that relationship with him. And engage your mind, because it's so easy to let your mind go. Okay, now, to focus on prayer. And not to worry you, but I took a lot of this information from Mike Fabares was here four years ago, I think 2019, and did four sermons on prayer. And when I was on vacation, 
I listened to all four of those and took very good notes and condensed them into this. So we might be done at 9 o'clock. I told Andy as I was driving here, I said, I think I'm in trouble. <laughs> it won't take that long. But he had such good, good ideas on prayer. So we'll start out by looking at the Lord's Prayer, Matthew 6, 5 through 13. And I love this model prayer. First of all, he tells us something about prayer. When you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Truly, I say, they have their reward in full. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. So do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. And I think, too, of that verse in Romans 8, where it says, The Spirit intercedes for you with groanings too deep for words. And I'm sure... A lot of you have been through things that are just heartbreaking. And there are times you don't know how to pray. You don't know what, what words, and you just come before God and you say, Lord, please help. And I picture the Spirit interceding for me at that time because I don't know. I don't know what to pray. I've just got this limited view here. But I know God, and I know he loves me, and I know he loves my kids. And so I pray, and I trust that the Spirit's doing that work, interceding. Okay, so don't be like the hypocrites. Don't do it. Don't pray for others to see you, but pray so that God can see you. And then pray then in this way, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. So start out by worshiping God and hallowing his name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. So it's a good thing to pray for daily bread. Sometimes I pray that I wouldn't have as much daily bread because I eat too much. <laughs> but I thank him for the food that we have. Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Now, I grew up in that social club of a church, praying that every Sunday. And in retrospect, it almost became a little bit like that repetitious prayer. I didn't think about it. We just said it, but I knew it. And now, I really like to pray it on occasion, very intentionally, not mindlessly, where I pray for those things. And then I draw in, you know, where it says, your will be done. I pray for the missionaries. Father, help them to be able to serve you well. Open the door for the gospel to go forth. That's another one. So the easy takeaways from this prayer, don't be like the hypocrites and pray to be seen by men. Pray in secret. Have any of you heard about Susanna Wesley? I love her. So what she used to do is 
I just picture her with this big dress on, and she would take her apron and pull it over her head. And that was her signal to her children that she was praying. So it wasn't particularly in secret. She's surrounded by all these kids, but they were not to interrupt her, and they knew it. That was her version of praying in secret. And don't use meaningless repetition. That is so hard because almost anything we do, if we aren't careful, can easily become meaningless repetition. So praying the Lord's Prayer can become meaningless repetition if you're not engaging your hearts. Okay, uh, use the Lord's Prayer as a guide to honor God, pray for his will to be done, pray for your daily bread, pray for forgiveness of sins, pray for deliverance from temptation and from evil, and pray for God to get the glory. And I think so often we neglect this, but it's such an important part because we, we want God to get the glory. And I know I've been sitting under Chris for years now, 20 years almost, and I love, whenever you compliment him, his response is, God is good. He gives God the glory for, I don't think I've ever complimented him on anything that he hasn't said that. So, yeah, it's, it's good. Okay, so, Mike Babara is part of the reason I liked what he said is he had a great way of encouraging me to pray, to try again, to not give up without guilting me. I mean, how many times have you felt like you're failing in your prayer life again? He acknowledged that, but then he quoted Colossians 4.2, devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. And he challenged us to commit ourselves once again to be devoted to prayer. So with that in mind, I would like to read through several of Paul's prayers from his epistles. And for the purpose of time, I think I won't. But I've written them down, and I would like you to look at them this evening, whenever. In your small groups, maybe you could do that together. They're lovely. In Ephesians 1, 14 through 21, all sorts of things to pray for. Ephesians 4, 13, or 14 through 21. Okay, I'm going to read that one because I love this one and I pray this for my family all the time. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen.
And then Colossians 1, 9 through 12. That's another one that when Andy and I were newly married, a pastor encouraged the wives to pray that for their husbands. I don't know why it was just the wives for their husbands. It would be really good for husbands to pray this for their wives too, but I took it as my, my task. And for years I prayed that daily. And still to this day, I will pray this for him and for our children. But I will let you look at that. Colossians 4, 2, very specific things to pray for. Pray that God will open a door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ. I particularly pray that for the Burnettes, for the Scarboroughs, for the Malachars who are in these countries that are closed, that God would use them. Um, so it's obvious there are very worthy things for us to pray, for which we can pray. And I would quickly like to address two types of prayer, which Mike Fabar has called one, the texting prayer, kind of just where you're sending things up quickly. Somebody tells you, my brother-in-law had such and such happen. You pray for the brother-in-law right then. I definitely don't want to be that person who says, oh, I'll pray for you, and then doesn't. So I either write it down right then, or I pray right then. And try really hard not to not pray, but to, to pray. And then the other, so that would be the first Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing. Okay, obviously Paul was not saying pray every single second of your life because he was doing other things. He was preaching. He was, he was a tent maker, right? Making tents. Um, there you go. <laughs> Writing letters. So there's a lot of things that he was doing. But you get the idea that it was his mindset and that when there was something to be prayed for, he would pray for that. And then the other would be a more concentrated praying, which Mike Fabara is called similar to FaceTime, where you're having a one-on-one -on -one conversation. Picture on really intent. Um, and he just quickly had a few examples Luke 5, 16, it says, but Jesus himself would often slip away to the wilderness and pray. You think about our Lord doing that. How much more we need to do that. Mark 1, 35, Jesus rose early to pray. And then he said not to go exercise. Well, I actually rise early to go exercise. I pray first, but I do go exercise. And every now and then, maybe I exercise first. Um, but it doesn't say in scripture to do that. It's just a good thing for your body to do that. You, you want to keep moving. Um, and I'm getting older. Matthew 14.23, Jesus dismissed the crowds and went to the mountains to pray. And another great example would be Daniel. Daniel 6.10, Daniel got down on his knees and prayed three times a day. And even when it was detrimental to his life. He kept that routine. So great examples. Um, and I think of Matthew 26, 39 through 41, it says, Jesus at the Garden of Gethsemane, and he 
went a little beyond them, fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, So you men could not watch with me for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And to me, that is such an encouraging verse. Here are the disciples who have been living and walking with Jesus. And Jesus is at his time of greatest need. And they couldn't stay awake. It helps me when I struggle to keep watching and to keep praying and to remember that it's not necessarily easy. That there's, it's a fight. So... And I think that is one expectation that's very important to know. Don't ever say, I'm going to give up praying because it's, I find it too hard and it should be easy. But it's not easy. Satan does not want you to pray and he is prowling around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He doesn't want you to pray. So there's great quote from Spurgeon, which I might have, oh, here it is, yay, it says, an exhortation about our prayer life. Do we not find ourselves in a cold state in regard to prayer? Even Spurgeon said that. When we feel that we can't pray, it's time to pray all the more. Pray to pray, pray for prayer, pray for the spirit of supplication, pray until you can. And I love that because I think that's such a true statement. And if someone as godly and productive as Spurgeon, that's his quote, so much more for ourselves, right? Okay, another thing that I would just like to finish with quickly is work hard to defend your prayer time. It is crazy to me how many things crop up. I'm a morning person. I love my mornings. I get up. My routine is to have my quiet time, pray. But I also am really good at paying bills at that hour of the morning and writing emails and texts. If you get texts from me at 4.30 in the morning, I'm sorry. Hopefully your phones are off. But there's so many things that all of a sudden start going through my mind. So I tell you, I'm applying this to my life much more than to all of your lives because I need to work hard to defend that time, to really spend time in prayer. Um, and some of the pieces of advice that Mike Fabar has had, he said, what can help you? And I think I had a place for you to write these down on your outline. It says, find a good place. Um, you can withdraw, go up to a mountain, go in your inner room, an upper chamber like Daniel, Susanna Wesley, put the little apron over your head. Sitting in your car, do you know? That's a wonderful place to pray because you're away from all the distractions. I like to pray sitting on the side of my bathtub because before I leave that bathroom in the morning, I'm not assaulted with everything else. So if I stay right there and pray, 
it's just easier to really focus. So find a good place, find a right time, a regular time that works for you. Like Daniel, three times during the day. Find faithful partners. And this one is just a great idea. Get some prayer partners. You can get as many as you like. For years, I have prayed on and off with my sister-in-law. That's been a, a sweet time of fellowship. Um, he recommends getting four people together and making sure it's not a gossip time. You can have various postures. Joshua was face to the ground. Moses was raising his hands. Hannah was standing before God. David was sitting before God. You can pace, you can kneel, you can bow. Um, you can have various vehicles to express yourself to God. And I know Andy likes to write out his prayers. I'm not a great writer, so I've never done that. But for those of you who are creative and like to express yourselves that way, it's wonderful. Make prayer lists. One of the things that Mike recommended was an acrostic from the word list, which is, and he was saying that in regards to your little group of people that you want to pray with, your prayer partners. So you would have first an L, pray for what is lacking if you're lacking with energy or time or resources. Um, pray for what's important, so that would be the I. What's coming up in your life? What things do we need to pray for? I had many people praying for me tonight. Uh, what sinful thing you are fighting, so that would be the S in list. And something to be thankful for. And I will end with the idea of gratitude. To have, because in Colossians 4, 2 through 6, it says, and pray with an attitude of thanksgiving. Spend more time in your prayers saying thanks. Um, 1 Thessalonians 5.18, give thanks in all things. Uh, James 1.17, give thanks for every good gift. Colossians 1.12, giving thanks to the Father in the middle of this prayer because God has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light, we can certainly all give thanks for that. So, expectations regarding prayer. So many expectations. So many times we've prayed to have things taken away. You look at Paul praying to have whatever is going wrong with him, the thorn in his flesh, taken away. He prayed three different times for that. God did not choose to do that. Um, just quickly, remember, remember the intentions of God. Why, why might God delay? It might be because it's a bad request. Peter, Peter didn't want Jesus to go to the cross. Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. It, he, he didn't want him to do that. There might be conflicting means. Um, so, again, they're using the example of Paul, and it says he's got this physical ailment, which could be a messenger of Satan, or it could be a way that God uses to draw someone to themselves. 
Um, when you get down on your knees and pray many times to take that chronic illness away, it draws you to your creator. It gives you a dependence on him. It's easy when you have something that is difficult. It's easy to be better, bitter. Um, I was going to rephrase it to a, it's, it's important to focus on what you have and not on what you don't have. Because you can be bitter about so many things, but when you focus on Christ and on the sacrifice he made for us, it helps to not focus on ourselves. Okay, I think I will stop there. Um, but I would encourage you to never stop praying because if you think of the guy, and I'm going to mess up this whole illustration, but who was knock, knock, knocking on the door of his friend and going, hey, I have company and I have no bread. Please, would you get me some bread? And his friend says, no, I'm in bed. Go away. But the friend kept knocking, knock, knocking, and he finally got up because he was persistent. And he went down and he got him the bread and he went away. And the idea there is that God is so much kinder than the man who was already in bed. And we need to persistently ask him for things that are good and right. Don't ask for things that are unbiblical. But if you have a child who is not following the Lord, it is good and right to pray for their salvation, to pray that God will open their eyes if you would like to be married, it's good and right to pray that God would bless you with a spouse. If you would like to have children, it's good and right to pray that God would bless you with a child. Recognizing God's sovereignty over all these things.